0: Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market.
1: You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it.
0: So Sheena, we started the podcast for a few reasons, but mostly was to share the learnings of other experts and leaders with the hopes of listeners being able to avoid mistakes, right? Being able to fast track mm-hmm. their success. That's kind of the big why behind Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast.
1: Exactly. I mean, I hate to use this term, democratizing access to knowledge and information, but we're kind of doing that. Maybe there's a better way to say it. Give me another uh, word, I wish Devin. you could see my
0: face, <laughs> listeners. I just, I just crumbled and melted a little bit. I can say that. Say it three times fast, Sheena. Say that. <laughs> it's Friday.
1: I'm not going to say it three times fast. <laughs> yes. Yes.
0: We're recording on Friday. You're probably listening to this on Monday, but if you're listening to it on Friday, maybe you're feeling like us. Um, but you know, a specific example, and there's many, all the things I post on LinkedIn and talk about, I pretty much learned the hard way, which, fun fact, our brains are actually wired to remember losses uh, because it doesn't want, your brain doesn't want to repeat them. Um, but it was selling into international accounts, specifically Europe. So I've pretty much been a North American seller, uh, selling to North American accounts. I've always been North American, but, uh, I remember distinctly like struggling and kind of running into like these invisible walls when selling to European accounts and markets. And it was kind of looking back in hindsight, it was assuming that they were more like me than they really were, which I know is kind of something Americans struggle with. We, all, we think the whole world is like our Western culture. I get it. <laughs> but I remember just thinking like, oh, like, yeah, you know, the English is a little different, but it's pretty much similar. Uh, or, you know, the culture of working and the speed of which people work and having, you know, incorrect expectations. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and, and and Europe is not just like one thing, like each country within just that region. Forget about international. Let's just talk about Europe. Each country has its own ways of business, their own, uh, you know, nuances and flavors that you know can take can be a little bit hard to get to know from the outside.
0: One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Something else I learned much later, unfortunately. You know, that's exactly what revenue intelligence is for, right? One of the many use cases is understanding what's really happening in the field, in these conversations. What are reps saying? that's working. What are reps saying? That's not. And the flip coin of that is what are, you know, what's the voice of the customer? What are customers and potential buyers saying Mm -hmm. and being able to take those insights and build a playbook around that, right? Which leads us to our very big, very exciting announcement that we just released last week.
1: So the big news is that we're expanding to Europe. Um, We already had dozens and dozens of customers in the region, um, I think over 70 to be exact. Um, and now we're really solidifying our presence in the region. And as part of that, we hired Wendy Harris, who is joining us on the show today and who we get to have a great conversation with about her experiences driving European expansion at some of the companies that she's worked in, worked at in the past, including Dropbox and CarGurus. Um, so she really has this playbook down, which was like really, really fascinating to hear.
0: Fascinating to hear and uh, exciting to know she's on our team, helping us with this oh, exact, yeah. exact project. So uh, she also had the most interesting reason for postponing the initial interview, which I'm not going to share right now. T- listeners, tune in for the next two minutes. You'll go ahead and hear that. But now you're, you know what you're in for. So, hey, let's let's go across the pond, as they say, and hang out with Wendy.
1: Wendy, welcome to Reveal. We're super excited to have you on the show. Thank you. Delighted to be here. And you're talking to us all the way from beautiful, maybe gloomy Dublin, Ireland. I don't know what the weather is like there today. Shockingly, I can see sunshine,
2: but it is a rare occurrence. So today is a good day.
1: (laughs) And I'm sure anybody could have guessed from hearing your accent where you were from, so we have a little competition going of who has the most uh, interesting and unique accent on the show. So you're definitely in the, in the race for that now.
2: I'm delighted because I actually have been listening to your uh, previous podcast and I definitely wanted to get at least in the top five. That was my <laughs> main goal. So I'm <laughs> from in the, from the top five, I'll take it.
0: We're a minute into the show and you're definitely top five, definitely top five already. Few,
2: yeah. few. <laughs> I know you're a tough taskmaster, Devin, so I'll take that as a win. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, so I have to tell the audience the story when we were um, emailing back and forth, we were having some exchanges on just scheduling and things like that. So then I, I got a response from you, which was that you had to reschedule because your horse was competing in the finals of a league and you had to go over and watch him. And so I was uh, kind of chuckling to myself, I'm like, oh my God, I've heard like the excuses of like kids soccer, basketball camp, whatever, all those kind of things. but. It was the first time that I heard from a sales leader that they had to reschedule due to a horse sports event. So can you tell us more about your horse and how did you get into horse related sports?
2: Yes, absolutely. So I do like to be different. My horse is called Arlo and his posh name because horses have posh names as well as stable names. His posh name is Silken Icon. And I'm very glad that I did reschedule because he went and he won the five-year-old championships last week. So I'm very proud. I'm a very proud stage mom. Yes, he's a talented horse. So um, I would, of course, be more proud if I was actually riding him myself. But I have uh, retired from competition. I I did it very seriously when I was younger. Um, And my parents, I think when I was about eight, asked me, if I'd like to go swimming or horse riding so I chose horse riding and for many years thereafter they wished they hadn't asked because (laughs) it's an expensive sport and it's pretty dangerous I think I've uh, broken four bones in my back, been knocked unconscious, unconscious twice, separated my shoulder, and uh, horses are, yeah, it's expensive, but I love it. And it is, the sport is called eventing, so that it's like a triathlon for horses, and uh, dress I showed them in cross country, and it is also one of the very few Olympic sports where men and women compete equally, so it's a pretty cool sport.
0: Thank you for telling me it's called eventing, because after this I would say, yeah, I know someone who's in horse sports, uh, <laughs> and I don't think that's the right phrase, so congrats to you again. <laughs>
1: Thank you. So speaking of growing up and, uh, you know, your your childhood and how you were raised. um, First of all, I think there's something in the water in Dublin, because as we were catching up and getting to know each other, you were mentioning your siblings. And, uh, you know, of course, you've had a, a great career in technology and your siblings are both also executives at Google and Facebook. So you're kind of like leading the tech scene in Dublin um are there certain values that your parents instilled in you all as children that you think led to your collective success yes
2: thank you for asking that this is the the great mystery my dad always jokes about (laughs) i'm not sure either of them know exactly what it is that any of us do but um but i will say that as far as parents go they're pretty amazing so i um And actually a little known fact is that I'm adopted. So my two brothers are not, but I'm adopted. So I think it's even more credit to them that it's not just the genes. It's actually how they raised us. And I think the first thing is work ethic. So my parents have exceptional work ethic and to the point that when they were locked at home with COVID for the last year, I went to visit them one day and dad said to me, "Um, did you see my roof? And I said, what about the roof? And he's like, I cleaned it. (laughs) And I was like, dad, it's the same outcome if you fall off the roof or you get killed by COVID, like I need you to stop that. So they never sit still. They have great work ethic. And I think the three of us have that. Um, A second thing I I think is that we all have fun. So we really believe in having a sense of humor and not taking ourselves too seriously and having a great laugh. And I always want to roar laughing every day at work. So it's very important to me and my brothers and the third thing i would say is that um it's something i would call like it's accountability and bounce back ability they taught us that so what i mean by that is That obviously, you know, I was very lucky to be raised with great parents who, you know, provided for us and sent us to good schools and everything. But there's plenty of people who had that opportunity, but see themselves as victims in life. And we never see ourselves like a victim and we are accountable for our successes and our failures. And when doors get slammed in our face, we just got to try harder. And I think. The best example I have of that is when I changed from, I worked for Goldman Sachs for 11 years as a trader. And when I was trying to change into technology, following in the footsteps of my two brothers, I saw the, the great careers and loved it. And every door was slammed in my face. And it was like, no, I'm sorry, this isn't available to you. We You don't have enough, um, you know, you just don't have enough uh, experience. And so I swallowed my pride and took a job at Facebook earning you know, 10% of what I used to on a contract role as a marketer. Thank you to Felicity McCarthy, who took a chance on me for my first role in tech. And that was whatever it was seven or eight years ago. Um, But it's bounce back ability and carrying yourself like the hero of your story and not the victim. So and making your own your own success in life. Life doesn't know you anything.
0: I love that perspective. I also uh, have someone I dedicate to, you know, the beginning of my career to in tech. I was uh, out in Sacramento where government was kind of like, you know, the next place people typically go, and it's uh, it's tough to get into tech. But shout out to all the people giving first chances to good people. Exactly. So Wendy, congrats again because not only um, are you an eventing champion, but you just joined Gong uh, as the VP of EMEA Sales. And so today we're going to talk about global expansion, and it can be appealing for companies that see traction in the U.S. or any geography to want to expand globally as soon as possible, and. As with any other major decision, there are pros and cons. I'm curious to hear from you, what are the top two or three elements a company should assess to determine if they're ready to enter a new geo?
2: Yes, so I'd love to give credit to a friend of my brother's called um, Stephen McIntyre. He co-authored a report. He works for Frontline Ventures, and it's an excellent report that I highly recommend people read about B2B SaaS firms launching in EMEA. And he sort of suggested that there's five questions CEOs should ask themselves. So the first one is, is the US business humming? Um, Is it, you know, uh, is the business doing well in the US? Do you have a great exec team like strength and depth in the exec team? Is there demand from Europe? Um, Is there a pull from the local market? Are you well-funded? And the very last question and the most important one of all is, is this a personal priority for the CEO? So is this, are the entire exec team bought into this? Because launching it in EMEA is hard. It's like, you may have a great product, you may have ton of success in the US, but this is not an easy thing to do. will require buy-in from the full exec team and a lot of resources and time and energy. And the size of the prize is enormous. And this report suggested that when many SaaS companies go public, in the region of 30% of their global revenues are coming from EMEA at that point. So it is a significant prize, but it is hard to launch. And he talks about something called success amnesia, which is when people launch in EMEA and they forget what made them successful in the US. They forget about the brand building and the marketing and all of this stuff building from the ground up. They can't assume everyone in EMEA knows, you know, about your great product or your great success story. You've got to start from the ground up and build that.
1: Intuitively, I would say it seems hard to enter a new geography, especially in in EMEA, where you have d- different cultures, different languages. Um, so like that's one thing, but like what else makes it so hard?
2: So I think, well, first of all, to your point, there are fifty different countries in EMEA, so um, and I think it's something like twenty four languages. And I think if you ask most people in various countries in Europe, they would say, I am Irish before they say I am European. So everyone has these very strong national identities and subcultures within those and you know the differences between French nationalities, the Germans, the Irish, it's it's quite vast and it's it is we may be part of the same continent but how everything plays out is, um, I mean, in terms of employment laws, there's various different employment laws in these different countries. Some are more extreme than others. And I think most are much more extreme than the US. There's privacy, different privacy, local privacy regulations. Um, there's different, you know, tax complications, depending on what what country you're in. Um, there is, you know, in terms of thinking about how easy it is to set up businesses in in these um, different countries. There's different sort of it's it's easier or harder depending on local regulations. So, it is Europe is a complicated place. It's a great place, and the size of the prize is enormous. But it is definitely complicated, and it should be approached with enthusiasm, but also understanding that this is this is a, going to be a Herculean effort, which is worth the time and investment.
0: I agree with you, Wendy, and only because uh, I was kind of a typical American and was like, yeah, Europe, you know, they all they're all all close together. They're probably fairly similar. I've been to Europe once uh, and someone on my team who's French was like, "Mm -mm, I'm I'm French before I'm I'm European. And uh, so so echoing what you had said, um, I imagine it might be similar to like the states. Right. Which is like, yes, we're one country, but folks in Alabama and folks in the West Coast are, are quite different. Though I don't know if we, uh, Sheena, consider ourselves Californian before American. That's another conversation. I'm curious though, like it is tough to gain traction. So how do you measure traction in, in a new geo? Like what are you looking for for kind of like early indicators, like, hey, we're on the right pace? And then maybe some like the more long-term goals to say, yes, like flag in the ground, so to speak, this was a success.
2: Yeah, and I can talk about before Gong, I worked at a company called Car Gurus, and I can talk about some of my experience there. And I think, you know, Car Gurus is a marketplace. So the you know, it's, a, it's a car shopping website. So I think some of the first things we looked at was each side of the marketplace. So in terms of the inventory, so the number of cars we actually got on site, we had a freemium model. So it was OK, well, what sort of level of interest can we generate in terms of getting people onto the basic model? And then it was looking at, OK, well, what percentage of those can we turn into paid customers? And we looked at things like, OK, well, there's, there's different types of customers, right? So you have your SMB customers, you have your mid-market customers, you have your enterprise customers. So how are you doing in each of those segments and the time to sale in the each of those and the average order size in each of those? And I think that's stuff that you'd measure across, you know, you'd measure that when you're starting a business in the U.S. as well. And then with the marketplace like CarGurus, we're also measuring, well, the number of visitors to our website. So it's like the consumers, each side. So you've got the dealers on one side and the, and the car buyers on the other side. So monthly unique viewers. And then you look at things like share a voice so, and press. So PR is a big part as well of any launch in EMEA and sort of um, the share of voice that you get um, in the press and thinking about the brand and sort of aided and unaided awareness. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's something that people don't necessarily think of straight away as well is, but it's the um, employee interest, right? So the number of applicants we get for the jobs, the caliber of the a- applicants we get for jobs, because you want, like, at the end of the day, every company is founded on great talent. We need to hire great talent. And is that proving to be easy or is that proving to be difficult? And it's like, and, and it's the whole thing about building the brand. It's an employer brand as well as, um, as a product brand.
0: Wendy mentions that when a SaaS company is preparing to IPO, on average, 30% of revenue is coming from EMEA. Global expansion might sound daunting, especially when thinking about how to adapt your sales motion to different markets and rebuilding the brand recognition you have domestically. That's why it's important to know that Harvard business experts discovered that 77% of companies that succeeded internationally excelled in the following traits. First, The executive team provided support to international teams and strategic initiatives seems obvious but obviously very important second the leadership team must understand the challenges of a new environment and accept that their previous go-to-market strategies might need to be adjusted in order to succeed and finally these teams have fortitude meaning everyone needs to be on board with the expansion plan even if the going gets tough these traits tell me that companies need to execute a detailed and well-researched growth strategy, and relying on data is critical to get it right.
1: There are so many moving parts to executing a launch in Europe uh, effectively. Um, oftentimes, you know, what a company will do is, hey, let's hire somebody who's going to run all of our operations in that geo, just like we did with you. So we're very excited to have you. Um, but... It can be tough, right? It can be tough because you're looking for somebody who's not just a revenue leader, but like they have to almost be like the GM of that geography in some ways. What traits should a CEO or other executives be looking for when they're making that first hire um, in a new geography? Yeah, so
2: I think you're exactly right. So ideally, the person would be a sales leader to begin with. But you know, I was lucky in that I had GM experience at Cargurus as well. And you do need someone who is an all-round athlete because at the end of the day, this person is going to be responsible for hiring great talent, for building a culture, for being the face of the company externally. And you know, we're eight hours ahead in Dublin, we're eight hours ahead of San Francisco. So um, so being the public face of the company and helping build the brand is a big part of it, as well as attending customer meetings, as well as helping close deals. So it is someone who has to be a great all-rounder. Um, It is also someone who has to be a self-starter and use their initiative and not passive and being waiting to be told what to do um, because you have to get up and you have to make it happen. Um, Ideally, your first hire will have a great network. So it will be a local person with a great network um, of of previous people they've worked with that they can tap into um, and help you get launched. And I think, you know, I would recommend that this first senior hire is a local person because they will have the cultural aspect. They should have a network of talent but I also think there is real um credibility to be given to sending a landing team as well so I know we have two members of Gong Adam and Lorraine are coming over to Dublin as well to join me and that helps seed some of the culture from headquarters and but another sort of element um last couple of things I'd say about your first hire is they need they are critical for giving feedback to the product team and to the marketing team and engineering team and and everyone about okay this is appropriate and this isn't so it's about about giving insight into cultural nuances about what will work what won't work but also someone who is able to advocate for resources you can't have someone who is too shy and not able to go fight for resource at the end of the day there's only there's limited resource in every company and getting them allocated in the right amount of time and energy allocated to a launch in EMEA is a big task and a big ask and you have to have someone who will be um, will use the uh, gong operating principle of no sugar and say it as it is and uh, and sort of fight for mindshare at the exact table.
0: Completely makes sense starting as a sales leader and obviously you'll kind of graduate into some other bigger projects. And I imagine maybe from day one, but maybe kind of a little more mid or long term is, you know, influencing the product roadmap. So do you have any advice on, you know, how to influence product roadmap? Because I imagine there's probably different requirements and needs again, not just from the U S to EMEA, but then all of the, you know, countries uh, that make up that geo.
2: Yes, I think with this again channeling the no sugar is is clear, but also being helping anybody who is not local to understand the context so walk in their shoes and just take the time to explain to them why something is important and differentiate between a nice to have and a must have so, for example. In EMEA, um, everyone in europe is obsessed with privacy it's like the eu and the general data protection regulation gdpr is the most extreme privacy law i believe in the world and so that is not a you know it's nice to have it's kind of like being gdpr compliant and understanding how to operate in emea and um, not fall foul of that is extremely important for anyone thinking of launching here and you know the fines are pretty big i think it's something like 20 million euros or four percent of your global revenue so um so so really helping the product team differentiate between this is a must have and it's non negotiable and this is a nice to have um and i think things like you know the things to think about with product in a me billing right the currencies euro swiss franc um, the, uh, pound sterling, um, and then things about localizing help desks and, and things like that. So there's, there's various things that can come in different stages. So thinking about things in stages, and then what is a hill you must die on <laughs> where you're willing to die on versus something that is okay. It can wait for now
0: for our audience that might be considering global expansion. Can you reveal one secret you've learned firsthand?
2: Yes. Um, and this one is something that might seem like a strange answer, but it is something that people need to be aware of. So Europeans and Americans have very different approaches to holidays or vacations, as they call them in America. And the EU actually has a rule that um, European employees have to have a minimum of 20 paid holidays a year. And it's even 30 in France, right? And as far as I'm aware, I'm not sure there even is a rule like that in America at all. So so I saw this hilarious tweet last week, which said um, European out of offices, hey, I'm away camping for the summer, email back in September. And then US out of offices are, um, hi, I'm out of the office for two hours getting my kidney replaced, but you can reach me on my cell at any time. <laughs> and I was like, that kind of sums up <laughs> the different attitudes. So look, it's something just be aware of it with your European employees. They're not lazy. It's just we're different. And, um, and the separate thing is from a business a revenue perspective. Be aware of it because um, July and August, literally Europe shuts down. Everyone in France, Italy, Spain is not available, is all out of office, especially in August and often the second half of July. And that's a problem when you're setting quotas. So be aware of it. And often in the UK and Ireland, people shut down for two weeks over Christmas. So it is actually, while it's you know something to joke about, it is also, it does also have business implications. So worth considering.
0: Now I, I think know that- why Adam from our sales team wanted this role so bad. He wanted two months <laughs> off and quota relief in summer. I see you, Adam. Well played. Lorraine, well done.
1: <laughs> Clever guy. I think the lesson for, for U.S. firms is to give your U.S. employees some more holidays.
2: Oh, yes. I, I totally agree. I once said on my... Uh, Senior management team meeting in my previous firm, I was like, when somebody said, We can't take holidays, we're too busy. I unmuted, like, We aren't saving lives. So we're the leaders. We need to lead, lead by example. Like, take your holidays.
1: In some ways, like being this first hire and like kicking off and, you know, your entry into Amia, it's really like starting a a startup within a startup or within a larger organization in some ways like there's so many you're you have to be entrepreneurial as well right you're you're yeah. thinking about marketing you're thinking about a product you're thinking about sales you're hiring like really every aspect of the business regardless of like how big the team is or how much traction they've already had you're kicking this stuff off all over again
2: yeah and to be honest that's what was so compelling to me about this opportunity because I've had the pleasure of working for some excellent um, companies and, but I was never the very first hire. I always got in a little bit too late. Um, so this opportunity to be one the first, and I've always, any of the leaders who've worked for me, I always operate with a mindset of be the CEO of your business. I once saw, when I worked at Facebook, I once saw something on the wall, which is nothing at Facebook is someone else's problem. And I think if you adopt that mindset and you're like, okay, we're all in this together and anyone I hire, I don't have all the answers. None of us do, but let's figure this out together. And isn't it so exciting to be bringing a product as compelling as Gong to the market? Like I just consider myself so incredibly lucky to get this opportunity genuinely, because it's, you know, building from scratch is just the biggest, most fun challenge ever.
1: A lot of that resonates with me i i consider myself a builder too so those kind of problems and, and figuring out new solutions is, is really exciting for me too um so looking at your linkedin profile like from the outside it can look like you know success upon success upon success you were the first or one of the first at ad roll and dropbox and CarGurus um, in dublin leading either uk or, or broader um, emia efforts um, but I'm sure it wasn't all smooth sailing. So could you tell us about a major setback that you encountered during one of these experiences, really getting those EMEA efforts off the ground for a US-based company? Absolutely.
2: Um, And, you know, I I definitely want to say nobody's career goes up in a straight line. As I said, it took me, everyone slammed a door in my face when I tried to move from finance to tech. So I I definitely haven't had a charmed life with it up up and to the right completely. But um, when I think of, one sort of cautionary tale i would say is i worked for a tech firm where i don't think the work was done up front on the total addressable market and the true size Um, you know really taking the time to figure that out before launching and what that meant and how that played out was there was a mentality of hire 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 get bums on seats we need people as quickly as possible you know we we've got to get everyone into see we've got to give them targets we've got to get selling and the intent was good but the the way it played out was it wasn't um, supplemented by enough thought about marketing and driving leads, and that you know we spoke about um, how we measure traction earlier, and measuring traction, you know, and in your inbound leads, the number that that's a really important measure of how you're doing in the market. So, so, uh, and then also the SDR team, the SDR team wasn't built out; it was very, you know, is very nascent. So there was loads of AEs and very few SDRs, and so you have what ended up happening was you had these really high. Um, you know, high earning AEs doing menial work and spending a lot of time like prospecting. And and so not enough inbounds to feed them and not enough SDRs to feed them. And so, and then ultimately what ended up happening was we, end, we got into this horrible cycle of hiring and firing and people, you know, due to employment laws in Ireland, you've kind of got to make a call on someone by month 11 at the latest or, you know, and so it just, it, the, t- the culture took a turn for the worse then as well. Um, And and it was really, it was a good, it was a really good lesson. I think what I took away from it was first is when you think about launching and AMIA, think about segments, okay? You don't need to be everything to everyone at, on day one. It's like start with your SMB mid-market segments, build a, build a motion there build a brand get some traction build your culture and then and also thinking about um country sets country sort of segmentation so you don't need to launch in all your markets in europe at once so start with the uk ireland and start with what's known to you as you know similar in um is not too much of a leap in terms of culture and it has the local language. And then even things like a Dropbox, actually, South Africa was a really um, a great source of revenue for us because it's only one hour ahead and it's English language. So and then Nordics tend to be very um, early adopters and, you know, great English proficiency, Amsterdam potentially as well or Netherlands as well. So so think about sort of how you would scale out across the media, but doing everything at once, a big bang, all segments, all countries, there's a lot to be said for focus and staging, I think was the big lesson we learned there. And also doing the work on the time and getting the marketing engine and getting the SDRs in place. So so yeah, so learning from those mistakes.
0: It sounds like, just kind of like Sheena said, when you launch in the States, you, you know start small, start targeted, get traction, go up market. Do you have any advice, Wendy, on how to pick which one of those countries to start with? Right, Because you said, hey, don't try to get into all these markets at once. You mentioned uh, you know English being the the primary language might be a good foothold is is that a I'm air quoting sure thing, or are there other kind of factors to to keep in mind too when when picking those first lands
2: I think the u k and Ireland is a safe bet or the safest bet for American companies to land in in general at first um so um language is obviously i just think culture wise it's not the biggest leap um and so I would say it's the most obvious place where most land thereafter the big fish the two other major fish are france and germany now um depending on the sort of product you have especially if it's got a lot of privacy concerns so but at the end of the day if you want mia to be 30 percent of your global revenue you've got to crack france and germany so i think it's like start with uk ireland think about even south africa as i said although you know obviously there'll be potentially some travel involved there but um but think about it scaling out nordics potentially again english speaking but then france and germany you do need to figure them out at some point if they are if you plan on making me a huge chunk of your revenue which it could be
1: so being the first hire or one of the first few hires in a new geo while it can be exciting from that entrepreneurial lens Um, I imagine it could also be lonely and you are on the other side of the pond from, you know, the HQ and from all your other colleagues. How do you, uh, from your past experiences, how do you maintain uh, that camaraderie with your revenue colleagues back uh, in the US?
2: Yes. Well, it's fair to say the last year has been desperately boring because Ireland's had one of the most extreme lockdowns. We've been locked. Yeah. We weren't allowed to go more than three miles from our house for like five months. So it's been pretty desperate. Wow. So um, but I will say previous to that, I used to um, visit Boston, is based in Boston. I used to visit there, you know, pretty much once a quarter. And I have never found too much trouble trying to get um, the US folk on a plane to Ireland. I've found that there's quite a lot of demand for that, especially when the pubs are open. So um, so I look, it's, it has to be a two-way thing and you've got to invest in FaceTime with people because I think we're all dying of boredom with Zoom and you've got to invest in the personal time with people and build connections and go for dinner and go for lunch and go for drinks and just, and, and that is time well spent. So I would say it does need to be a two way street and I'm very much hoping whenever we get our nice shiny new office in Ireland that you will both come and visit. Um, and, uh, and that also the execs will come visit. Um, so yeah. So, but it, it look, it's, it's critical to have the face time, but the other thing I would say is to minimize any sort of friction between revenue teams in the U S and revenue teams in EMEA, um, rules of engagement are key right so this is something that p- firms don't often think about it until it becomes a problem but you know where is the decision maker located where is the budget coming from Um is are they buying for their european entity their subsidiary all of these things that reduces unnecessary friction at the end of the day we all want in this case gong to be the biggest thing ever so we all have the ultimate end goal but friction at a rep level or a, a sales manager level it can be minimized and keep relationships sweet if there's just clear sort of swim lanes from up front so um so that's kind of a tip i'd have
0: I may or may not have been involved in some heated debate over rules of engagement in my selling career. Uh, do you have any, uh, tactical guidance? Like, Hey, you know, I've seen this work and I've seen this not work. Right. Cause I mean, there's so many ways you can split it. It's like, is the HQ here or there? Is it LinkedIn or is it in Salesforce that we're using as our source of truth? Is it where the DM is? Is it, uh, w- w- what's your kind of, uh, formula there, Wendy?
2: Well, One thing I would say that the only time I was genuinely upset about something was when I perceived that the person who was meant to be neutral who was in you know revenue operations or, or strategy was actually very much not neutral and was very much in the pocket of the uh, the alternative person so I think it they them being a neutral judge whoever the person is is key to anyone being able to accept a decision and if it seems like they're very one-sided and every decision always goes one way then they've no credibility so so that's so I would say that's key the second thing is um, about choosing your battles I do remember, very clear um, comments from one of my team members for being like, the, uh, it was at this point, the Strats team's prospecting um, strategy seems to be to go in and check our pipelines and figure out, you know, are there any subsidiaries? Are these subsidiaries of bigger companies? And I was like, okay, guys, it's probably not, but that's quite funny. So, um but I just, uh, and then once I do remember like t- taking the moral high road and handing over a deal and my reps really not happy that I did that. And I was like, at the end of the day, like we're all in this for the company and to win, and you choose your battles. And if you approach things and be fair, you don't need to win every battle. It needs to be fair, right? So, right. so really important that the person um, organizing the rules of fair is fair and perceived as fair. And then also, you've got to be reasonable.
0: Yeah, it's such a good point too. Is you know, handing over a lead like, oh, I guess this, you know, this lead I was reaching out to, but haven't had a meeting with yet. That's not mine. Okay, go for it. Uh, if I'm mid or late stage and you go, Oh, Hey, actually that's my, that's my account. Uh, Wendy, yeah. mind handing over that deal that you have in your forecast for this quarter? That's when things are like, eh, not, not so fast,
2: Right. Okay. but, uh,
0: you've made, you've made some great points about having a neutral judge. It's a great way to put it. Absolutely. Final question for you. We ask all of our guests, how would you describe sales in one word?
2: I would describe sales as risk. And what i mean by this is the fact that there are no guarantees in sales and i have the utmost respect for salespeople who roll the dice and they don't they know the greatest highs and the roller coaster and the adrenaline but they also have the worst lows and when you back yourself and you go into battle every day and this might be a bit of a leap but i genuinely think of this so brene brown i love her work around vulnerability and she spoke about theodore roosevelt's man in the arena speech and, it, you know, and I, I'm paraphrasing here. I'm not going to remember, but it's like basically the credit belongs to the man in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. And ooh, if he succeeds, knows the triumph of great achievement. And if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. And I really applaud salespeople because they go into battle every month, every quarter. They roll the dice. There's no guarantees. And it, nothing frustrates me more when I see um people turn their nose up at sales. And I'm like, well, really? Do you go and roll the dice every day? Do you take risks? Do you put yourself out there and be willing to fail? And I just think it's it's so valiant. And I, I just, I applaud anyone who, who is in this game. I think they're brilliant.
0: The quickest way to tell if someone has not been in sales is if they make a comment about how easy sales is or yeah, salespeople right. are lazy. I'm like, we, no one says that about engineers or doctors. Why, <laughs> you know, not that their jobs are easy either, but you know what I mean? It's like, come on people, just because it's, I think because it's a communication skill, you know, a role that's focused in communication that people are like, oh, I talk to people, I write emails. I, I kind of present information time to time. It's not that hard, but that's a phenomenal example and uh, kind of got me fired up. I felt like a gladiator for a second as you're walking me through that, <laughs> uh, that example. <laughs>
1: Well, Wendy, thanks again so much for joining us here on Reveal today. Uh, so excited to uh, meet you. i excited, yes. I'm going to get you over to Dublin, Sheena, and Devon. now. So, and, and you can hear all of
2: the accents. And trust me, there's many, many different Irish accents ahead of you. So, um, so yeah, I'm really just, again, delighted to be joining Gong. I, and I couldn't be more enthused about our future in EMEA. So exciting times ahead.
0: Every week, we bring you a micro action. Something to think about or something you can put into play today. Wendy shared what it takes to successfully expand into European markets and listed some key questions for executives and sales leaders to answer before sending a landing party across the world. Here are some questions worth considering if you have an international team already or considering expanding soon. First up, is the company already thriving in the US? Next, Is there demand in other areas of the world for your product or solution? If so, where are they? Next, what talent do you have today and do you need to bring in any new talent to handle cultural nuances? And finally, if you have one, is your executive team fully bought in when it comes to your plan? These questions might seem big and they are, but like Wendy said, it's important to put all these pieces together before selling into a new international market. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday.
1: And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there.
0: And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then.
1: And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal@gong.io. At